we're going to look at, um, we just want to continue on today with um, this series of Jesus, the great I am, as you can see with that slide up there behind me. Um, John's, go- John's gospel, his account of, of Jesus and the interactions that people have with Jesus. Um, he records them uh, uh, describing Jesus and displaying Jesus, not simply as a man, not simply as a human being, but as divine, as the son of God, because that's his point. That's what he wants to get across. He wants people to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God come to presence himself with us. And so he records. Um, we know that it's, it's a book of sevens, right? So we've got seven miracles that we looked at a few years ago that are there to, to display the splendor and the glory of Jesus, who he really is. Um, seven interactions with people that Jesus had, that where they, after, when they've encountered Jesus, they recognize him for who he truly is. He is God. And then there's seven, um, seven statements or inferences that Jesus makes about himself. And then we have seven very specific, very clear statements that Jesus makes. And they are these, these I am statements that he declares. And that was... Um, very controversial, I guess, for most, most Jews, most Israelites, because um, the very nature of that, of that title, I am, is, 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 is that it was God. It was a title exclusively used for God. I am. You find that in Exodus chapter 3, where God first reveals his name. I am that I am. I am. I'm able to be everything you need me to be in whatever situation you're in. That was who God is. He's able to do anything. And so for anyone to use that title incorrectly, it was punishable by death. And for for Jesus to stand up and use that term was an incredible statement. How brave would that be? Because the punishment was stoning to death. And yet Jesus gets up and boldly declares that seven times. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, the door, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth and the life. I am the vine. And so, so John includes, includes all of these controversial statements about Jesus so that we would know him for who he truly is. The Lamb of God, the Son of God, God himself. So last week we looked at the first of those statements, I am the bread of life, um, that he is the one who's come from heaven, the one who can supply everything we need. And so in John chapter 8, we read this next statement. Uh, It's John 8 verse 12, where Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Quite a statement. Someone once said that um, your little toe was created to find furniture in the dark. <laughs> and if you've ever had that experience, you know, you're going back to your bed in, uh, in the middle of the night after going to the bathroom and you will invariably find some piece of furniture with your little toe and it's an incredibly painful experience for anyone who's, ex- who's had that. I'm sure most of us have. I sure have. <laughs> A number of times. 
Because when, you, when, you, when you're groping around in the dark, it can be a painful experience. Um, in 1975, there was a movie that came out that actually shocked many people in the world. Not, not shock, shock, but it kind of was a frightening movie. It was Jaws. You can remember that movie, right? All of these massive shark and these... Anyway, during that period of time, it was just before we, Robin and I got married. We got married in 1979. But all through the 70s, my brother and I spent a lot of time actually spearfishing. And we would go out, you know, into the water. And, 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 and it was a particular day just before we were married. So it was around 77, 78. And I went spearfishing. And I did two things that you should never, ever do. Number one, I went on a day straight after a big storm. And you just don't do that because the water is very murky and, and you just have very poor visibility. The second thing I did, which was really stupid, is I went by myself. And you never go spearfishing by yourself. Right? So the two kind of cardinal sins for spearfishing, murky water by yourself, and I did both. Robin was with me, but she didn't come into the water. She was just sitting up on the, up on the shore and I went to this particular place called Merino Rocks. It was a very rocky area, but it was great for spearfishing. And uh, so I'm out there in the water, and I'm swimming around looking for a clear patch so at least I can see something. And suddenly, this great big gray shape, biggest thing, I mean, it's probably six, seven feet long, just boom, scoots across underneath me. And the water was too murky. It was, I just couldn't, I didn't know what it was. That was a pretty scary experience, you know? That was, that was frightening. And so I realized pretty quick, I don't think I should be here. <laughs> so, so I turned around and I start swimming back into to shore, to the rock ledge where we get in and out of the water there. And um, I'm about halfway back and I put my head up just to get my bearings to, to pick the right spot. And I hear someone shouting. I couldn't understand then what they were saying, but I hear someone shouting, and I looked up, and there's Robin running across the rocks, waving her hands, screaming. So I think, uh-oh. <laughs> so I swim as fast as I can to get back to shore, and just as I get to this rock ledge, um, the water clears because it's quite rocky there, and so there's no sand that gets stirred up, and, and I see this grey shape coming up next to me and then I look and the water was clear enough for me to now see what it was and it was a beautiful big dolphin <laughs> and it just rolled its, rolled its head, looked at me and then swam away. It was an amazing experience but I was still, my heart was still <laughs> racing like crazy because when I got up onto the shore, see Robin didn't know it was a dolphin. All she saw was a fin come up right next to me when I was, you know, further out. When, when, when you're in those situations and you cannot see clearly, it, it causes you to, to see things incorrectly. And you can get some misconceptions and distortions of what is actually true. That can actually scare you. And I think there's a lot of people who are going through life in this world who have a very distorted picture of God. They have a misconception of God because they've never seen him clearly. And so in many, in many ways they think he's, he's like this shark that is out to get them. 
He just wants to punish them. He wants to bring judgment upon them. He, wants to, he, he just wants to devour them. And you know, that's not what God is like at all. He's actually much more like that dolphin who actually wants to come along and play with you. He wants you to enjoy him. In fact, the Westminster Catechism says that man's chief aim, our purpose in life, is to worship God and to enjoy him forever. In fact, God takes his greatest delight... The thing that gives him the greatest pleasure is when we take delight in him, when we enjoy him and when we're not afraid of him. You know, he's, he, he comes to heal us and to love us and to pour out his goodness upon us, to bless us. That's the God that we serve. He's not a shark out to get us. In fact, Jesus came, his very purpose in coming was to show us what God is really like. Hebrews chapter 1 um, says that, I think it's verse 3, says that he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God. He, he, he reflects the glory of God and everything, everything about him represents the loving nature of who God is. He came to show us what God is really like. And so... Um, we saw in that first statement, that first I am statement last week, that he is God. He is God. When Peter asked Jesus, he says, um, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus' response was, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen what God is really like. And so John, he, he, he starts this, his whole gospel with, with a number of statements, he talks about Jesus being eternal. He's the eternal word. He was with God in the beginning. He is God. And then he goes on in verse 4 of, of John chapter 1, and he says this. He says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. It has not understood it. And it's out of this truth about who Jesus is that Jesus stands up in John chapter 8 and he makes that incredible statement, I am the light of the world. Now, I said, um, said last week, and I keep saying this all the time, that context is very important. If we don't understand the context that a story is set in, we will misinterpret it. We won't get the truth. We will be stumbling around blindly in the darkness and we're going to end up stubbing our toe and getting hurt because we haven't understood the proper message. And, and, and that's the case here when Jesus makes this statement. Um, John chapter 8 is a continuation of John chapter 7. You know, when John wrote his letter, he didn't divide it up in chapters and verses like we have. He wrote it as one long dialogue. And there are paragraphs, so he separates sections. But it's just one long, one long uh, uh, dialogue there. But, but John chapter 7 kind of sets the scene for what Jesus is going to say. In the Jewish calendar, they have a number of festivals and celebrations that they have during the year, some really important ones. And one of them was this. Who's ever heard of that? The Feast of Tabernacles, or it's, it's known as Sukkot. Um, but it was the, it, it, it's, a, it's a celebration um, that takes place and where 
People from all over the country would come to Jerusalem to, for this. It's an eight-day celebration. And they would come there to celebrate. It was uh, to remember the time of, of God bringing Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into the promised land. But, but we all know that that didn't happen automatically. right? It took 40 years for them to get there. And during that 40 years, they're not building houses, but they're living in tents, little tabernacles, little structures. And, uh, and in that time, God supplies everything they need for 40 years. Water, food, their clothes don't wear out. He heals them. I mean, it's an amazing time. And so this Feast of Tabernacles, one of its primary reasons is what it, it, it was a celebration, a memorial to God supplying everything they needed. And so people would come from all over the country and they would remember this time by actually staying in tents, little tents. They would build little tents or little structures. Those who lived in the city, they would build something temporary up on their roof. And then they would sleep up there and they would eat up there. For eight days, they did this. And um, the whole theme of it was one of restoration. That God supplied everything we need and all of our needs were satisfied for those 40 years. But when the Messiah comes, he's going to do the same. He's going to satisfy all of our needs. When the, and, and, and so there was this belief that the Messiah would come during this time. And so every year when they celebrated this festival for eight days, there's an expectation the Messiah is going to come. Now, what they would do is every morning there would be a ceremony. And so for seven days, the first seven of the eight days, they would do this ceremony where the priests would gather, people would gather um, in the temple courts, and then there would be this procession down from the temple that would wind its way through the city, and then they would get down, and they would just go just outside of the city gates to the Pool of Siloam. That was the water supply for the city. And the priest would take a golden uh, urn, and he would fill it with water from this pool and they would march back. It was a big parade. There was banners and flags and people would follow and they would shout out praises and, and, and they would get back to the temple and the priest would stand and he would pour out the water from this pool on the west side of the altar. At the same time, another priest would stand and he would pour out a jug of wine on the east side of the altar. And at the same time, what would happen is the people would recite the psalm, five psalms, from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And so they would go through this process every morning. But then on the eighth day, on the eighth day, something different happened. They didn't pour out water. They still gathered at the temple, but they didn't pour out water on this eighth day. The eighth day was a day of huge celebration. I mean, there was dancing and singing and, you know, people went crazy. They were just celebrating, worshipping God, thanking him for everything. And, uh, and then a lot of feasting, a lot of food on that eighth day. And on this eighth day, when water wasn't poured out, Jesus stands up. And he says this. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Whoever 
believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow out from within them. Now, this whole water celebration that they did, this gathering the water, this pouring out the water, was all as a memorial, was all in thanks for God supplying water to them every day for 40 years. You know, Moses had, would, would take his rod and he would either speak to the rock or touch the rock. One day he actually hit the rock when he wasn't meant to. But every time water came out and they had everything that they needed, everything they needed was supplied for them. And so Jesus stands up on this day where water isn't being poured out and he says, guys, if you come to me, you used to go to Moses. You know, you went to Moses to get water. But everyone who now comes to me and drinks of me, you'll never thirst again. What's he saying? He's saying, guys, Moses touched the rock. I am that rock. I am the living water. In fact, if you drink from me, if you believe in me, and if you draw from me, the water that I give you, it's going to rise up within you. It's going to bubble up, and it will be a perpetual well and a stream that will flow out of you continually. He was talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit that was going to come after Calvary. What an amazing thing to do. Seven days, they're pouring out water, celebrating at the altar, and Jesus comes up and he says, you know, all of this, all of this was pointing to me. All of this is about me. It's not about Moses. It's not about a natural earthly rock. It's about living water that I can give you. Now, that's what they did every morning for seven days. In the, in the afternoons, late afternoon, early evening, there was another ceremony that they used to do every day for, for, for eight days. And it was a thing called um, um, the illumination of the temple. So one involved water every morning, and then every evening there was another celebration that involved lights. And um, I've got a photo of this. I want you to see that. They had these four huge um, candelabras, menorahs, massive. That's, that's a small version of the ones that they had in Jesus' time. They were 75 feet tall. Now, that's, that's seven stories. More than seven stories tall in a modern-day building. And every night, they, there were four of these things stationed around. And every night the priests would organize guys and they would go and they would light these candelabras. They were, they were fueled with oil. And, they, and the light that came from them was so bright that it was said that almost the entire city could be lit from these four huge candelabras. Now that's one that they found, but that's not one of those original big 75-foot ones. That's a much smaller one. But you can see what it would have been like. What was it? It was a, a reminder of how God led them by a pillar of fire for 40 years. How he provided light for them in the darkness. How he provided warmth for them. But it was also a reminder of the, 
Shekinah glory that would rest over the tabernacle and would dwell in that, in that most holy place. You know, when Moses, whenever he was with God and he would come back and he would, his, his face would shine with that glory. And the people were frightened by that and so they made him put a veil over his face. It was also a reminder of the glory that came and filled the temple of Solomon when they dedicated it. And so you've got all of this imagery going on. And so they go through this ceremony every night, eight nights in a row during this feast, of remembering the glory of God and how God led them by a pillar of fire, how his glory came down upon them. And so there's this expectation of all of the prophecies about the Messiah who would come and would shine his light to the whole world. And when light came, everything would change. And so on the, on the day after, on the day after all of this eight-day festival, on the ninth day, people would still come and gather at the temple to worship. It was kind of the overflow, you know. And that happened sometimes for almost a week afterwards. People would still come and they would still worship and they would still sing the songs and glorify God. And on this ninth day, early in the morning, Jesus comes, John chapter 8, he comes to the temple and there's a crowd that follow him. There's a huge gathering of people. And you can imagine he's there standing perhaps right next to one of these great big menorahs, these great big candle, candelabras. And its light has now gone out because they're only lit it for those eight days at night. And Jesus stands up and he says, Guys, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me, anyone who believes in me, they will never walk in darkness. Can you see how, when we, when we get an understanding of the context of what is really happening, how it, how it actually changes our understanding, this was, a, this was a dramatic event. This wasn't Jesus just walking along saying, oh, guys, I'm the light of the world. This, this I mean, put yourself there. See, when you understand the context of the story, you start to see things a little bit more clearly. What was the expectation of Israel? That when the Messiah came, he would bring living water. And Jesus <laughs> has said just the day before, guys, I am that living water. When the Messiah comes, he's going to light the world. And Jesus stands up and says, I'm here. I am he. Now, later on, John writes in the book of Revelation, he says he talks about the holy city, and he says it's not going to need sun. It's not going to need any light because the Lord is the light. He's going to supply all the light that we need. You know, the Bible equates um, light with good, with holiness, with purity, with righteousness, that which is right and proper, but it also equates darkness with evil. Right? So we see God as light, and we see Satan as darkness. And that's always the way that it gets portrayed. You see it in movies and everything, but that's specifically the way that the, that the Bible describes it. Paul says in Colossians 
that uh, in Colossians 1, I think it's around verse 12 or 13, he says that we have been translated, we have been taken out of a kingdom of darkness and put into a kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. So one kingdom is darkness, one kingdom is light, and you and I have been rescued out of a kingdom of darkness. We were dead in sin, which is buried in darkness. And Jesus comes along, and when we see him for who he truly is, the I am, what happens? Uh, When we trust in him, he lifts us up out of that dark place, out of that pit, and he places us into a kingdom of light. Paul says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We belong to the, we do not belong to the night or darkness. We belong to the light. In, 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 uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, he gives us those, those statements. We are a, a holy nation, a chosen generation. What's the other one? Royal priesthood. And he goes on and he says that... Um, that we've been called out of darkness and into light. There's power in light. There's real power in light because it changes environments. It changes everything. Remember how how the Bible starts with this very fact. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and there were three things you see, Genesis 2, chapter 1 through to about verse 4 or 5, or 3. The earth was dark, was without light. It was formless, right, without shape, and it was void, completely devoid of life. And then something happened. Something happened. God opened his mouth, and at 186,000 miles a second, light bursts out of his mouth and everything changes. There's incredible power in light. God is light. He says, let there be light. Bang! There are three things that I just mentioned Right, three things that we see. An earth that was formless, an earth that was without shape, suddenly took on form. And here's Jesus. He's at this festival. Those big lights have been turned off. They're out. And he stands there next to one and he says, Guys, I am. He makes this definitive statement. I am the light of the world. Your life, what's he saying? He says, your life has been in darkness. Your life has been a shapeless mass. No direction, no rhythm, no rhyme, no reason, but now I'm here. You're you're dead spiritually. But now I've come to shine light on your true state so that life may come. Remember when John says, he says, he is the light of the world and in him and in him, in this light is life. He's talking about our, our spirit being, our soul coming alive again to Jesus. 
It says, you are dead. You are in total darkness, controlled by the kingdom of darkness, lost in sin. But now pure light has come. Now hope has come. Finally, you can see your real need. Stop groping around in the dark. It's like the blind leading the blind. Now that light has come, you can see. You see, folk, without Jesus, we're just a formless mass. Really. I mean, think about it. Even, even the, the, the wonder of life is something that I marvel at all the time. But you started as a formless mass. You know, every one of us. You were invisible to the naked eye. But when those, when those cells got together, that little swimmer was the winner. Right? And when those cells got together, it was just a mass of cells. And it took quite some time for that mass of cells to grow and to develop before you could identify what it was. Now, we know in hindsight what it is when we see those little, you know, embryos. But it takes time for the shape to form for you to be able to identify, hey, this is a little baby. David writes in the Psalms and he says, guys, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's womb. God comes and he brings shape and form. Without Jesus, we are just a shapeless mass. But then when he comes into our life, what does Paul say? He says, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. What are, what's the shape? What's the form that's happening in us? We are taking on the likeness of Jesus. Folk, without light being shone on us, you won't take on the likeness of Jesus. Now, we all know, you can't hide anything from God. When he shines his light on something, it gets exposed. Amen? And so what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's not doing it to make us feel bad. He's doing it so that light comes. We, something in us gets exposed that is not like Jesus. It's a shapeless mess. And so what happens? Light comes on, and as we respond to the light, as we allow the Holy Spirit to actually transform us, we take on more and more of the beautiful form and shape of Jesus. Light is powerful. It's the essence of his being. And when we allow his light to shine into our life, we go from being a shapeless mass into actually being a walking, talking representative of Jesus. And as Jesus declares, as, and, and as the writer of the Hebrews says, you know, Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. Folk, the more we allow his light to shine on us and we respond to that light, we become representatives of that same image. Second thing that we, that we notice is that um, the earth was void, completely devoid of life, empty of life, and yet it takes on life, that the earth is prepared, ready for life to come. You know, people can go through life searching for fulfillment. Um, they're looking for purpose. They're looking for something to fill the void and the emptiness within them. And they look for it in all kinds of things. Career, sport, money, you know, fame. 
all of these things that they're looking for something that's going to fill that void within them. But the reality is only God can do it. Because as we've all heard many times before, people use this kind of um, picture that there is a God-shaped void within every one of us. And only God can fill that. You can try and fill it with a whole lot of other things, but it's all false. It will never satisfy that real deep inner need. Only God will satisfy it. And it can only happen as his light comes and shines on us, as we see who the true light is. We were created to be in union with God, in a relationship with him, to know him. Without him, we are formless and empty. We can have physical life, but we are dead inside. We need Jesus. Every single person on this planet needs him. In, um, in John chapter 8, just before Jesus makes this statement, John puts a story in there. We don't know whether it's exactly in that same time frame, but that's where he, that's where he puts it. He's chosen to put in the beginning of John chapter 8 a story that we all know quite well. And it's the story of the adulterous woman. Remember that story where she gets dragged before Jesus by the Pharisees. Um, she's been caught in the act of adultery, not just accused of it, not just, you know, there's a rumor going around that this lady is a bit loose and something's going on in her life. No, it specifically says she was caught in the act. We all know what that means. And so she gets dragged before Jesus. Interesting. Uh, the guy's not there. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. But the whole purpose of these Pharisees dragging her before Jesus is because they're trying to trap Jesus on a point of law. Because the law says she should be stoned to death. So what does Jesus do? We all know that story. Here's here's these group of religious, pious people who think they're more holy than anyone else. And they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to make him do something, say something, that will cause them to have reason to actually kill him. And so they drag this woman to him, and Jesus stands there, and then he looks at them. They're standing there with rocks in hand, ready to kill her. Probably if he says anything out of line, they're going to start stoning him as well. And he bends down and he starts to write in the sand. You know the story. And it says, one by one, starting with the oldest, they leave. He says to them, whoever among you who is without sin... Let him be the one who casts the first stone. And then he writes down. Now, there's a lot of conjecture as to what he writes. You know, what did he actually write down? Uh, Some people believe that he actually wrote down some of the sins that he knew that these pious men had been committing. Maybe that's why some of the the oldest ones went first, because they've got a long history of doing stuff wrong. You know, and probably the more that... Jesus wrote in the sand, the more, oh, yeah, I did that, and I did that, and I did that, and I did that. (laughs) So they all end up 
leaving. So Jesus then turns to the woman and he says to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Who's left to bring a charge against you? And she says, no one. And Jesus says, neither do I. But he doesn't quite leave it just there. He says, right, now go and actually stop doing this. Right? Clearly, she's actually been in the habit of doing some of this for Jesus to say that. So what happens? Jesus sheds light into a situation. He sheds light on her condition, but he doesn't do it to condemn her. He simply does it in a way to expose the truth of the situation, but he does it with grace and love and compassion. He does it in a way where she can be healed emotionally, where her self-esteem can actually be lifted back up again and where she can go off free. He exposes the hypocrisy in these other men and they have to leave. You see, that's what happens when light comes. And so what happens to this life, to this lady? She gets her life back. When light comes, life comes. And we're all, we've, we've all got experiences in our, in our life where we know, man, we've stuffed up, done things wrong, and, and, and if we're not, we're not smart enough, if we're not in tune with the grace of God, the devil will pile in on us and we start believing some of the lies that we're horrible and disqualified and useless and condemned and actually we should be stoned, you know, don't get any ideas. Don't go out and get... I'm not talking about that kind of stone. <laughs> I have a friend who keeps asking me, when are they going to invent Christian marijuana? <laughs> Some, sometimes, sometimes the best Christian marijuana you can get is just to actually be able to sit with a good, trusted friend and have a good, honest conversation. But the greatest high is Jesus. Amen? So sometimes we can feel like that. We can, see, we can feel overwhelmed with guilt. But when the light comes, yes, it exposes, but it doesn't expose to make us feel bad. It exposes so that life may come into our situation. The third, the third thing, and I'll just close with this one, is, is darkness covered the earth. It was in complete darkness, but when God speaks, light broke in. When light was proclaimed, and what God spoke into being burst out of him who is light, a dark, dead, formless world was changed. Life came. And so here we have on this, on this eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the, this final celebration day, the last of the good days, the culmination of all of these sacrifices and these songs and these, this dancing. Um, the priest would stand up on that last day and he would actually recite Psalm 92. 
And Psalm 92 says this, It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. And that's what they're doing. They'd have a celebration in the morning and one at night. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord. How profound your thoughts. The senseless man, the blind man, does not know. Fools do not understand. The expectation was when the Messiah would come, he would establish the great tabernacle of peace. There was an expectation that at the hands of the Messiah, everything would change. And John inserts another incredible story right at this time. And it's the story of the man who was born blind. had never seen in his life. And Jesus comes along and with his hand, he makes mud and puts on this man's eyes. And he says, go and wash. Where did he have to go and wash? The pool of Siloam. The same place where these priests were going and getting this water that they were pouring out on the altar every time. So there's this expectation the Messiah is going to come and with his hands he is going to bring healing to the nation. He is the light of the world. He is the river. He is the water of life. And, and, and Jesus pulls all of this together and with this blind man he makes mud with, with what? Spit? Water? And his hands, puts it on the man's eyes and says, right, go and wash in this same, same pool. And what happens? The man sees. Goes from a place of darkness into a place of light. For the first time in his life ever, he sees. And when Jesus is performing this miracle, when he's putting the, the mud on this man's eyes, people around, they're watching. He makes the same statement again. Guys, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will not walk in darkness. They're going to see. And now this man suddenly receives his sight. It's good to actually study these stories and do it in context so you can see what's actually happening. We, we read them as little parables or little stories, and we don't get the full impact of what's really going on. It's good to do a bit of historical study. Jesus illuminates you and I so we can shine. Light enables us to see things how they really are. In fact, once his light comes and shines upon us, once we've seen him as our light, it actually enables us to see ourselves for who we really are. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he turns to you and I and he says, now you are the light. He says that in Matthew chapter 5. He says, guys, you are the light of the world. I'm the light, but now you're the light. And then he says, don't hide your light. 
but let it shine so everyone can see. I've called you to be a light to the world, to shine and reflect my glory, my person. Now, how is that possible? Because he puts his light into us. But we'll never be that light unless we live in the light. Unless we continually allow the light of Jesus to continually forever shine upon us. Unafraid to look at him. Um, I'm sure most of you uh, have solar lights. I mean, they've become all the rage. You know, in, a, in your garden, anyway. We've got some in our garden. And uh, across the front of our garden. But those solar lights are dependent upon those batteries that are in them being charged up by absorbing sunlight. And according to the amount of sunlight that they absorb, that gives them the ability and the power to shine at night when there's darkness around. It's exactly the same for you and I. The more of the sun, S-O-N, light that we absorb, our batteries get recharged and we are able to shine in the darkness. And Paul writes that. I think it's in the book of uh, Philippians. He says, guys, let your life shine with the brilliance of the sun. He actually says, let it shine like stars in the universe. Look up in the night sky, and what do you see? Stars shining. But what enables you to see them shining? Reflection of the light? There's something else. The darkness. They are set in contrast against the black sky. You don't see those stars during the daytime, even though they're there. You see them in the darkness. <laughs> and we're afraid of a dark world. Focus an opportunity for us to actually shine. And we are living in a broken, dark world in which we should be shining. <laughs> Amen? So how are we going to shine? We allow the light of the world to continually shine upon us. It's a a sad thing when when so many Christians run from God out of fear that he's going to punish them, out of fear of embarrassment, out of fear of condemnation, instead of turning towards the light and saying, God, let your light come and burn everything that is not of you out of me. Amen? And that's my prayer for us. God, God, it's not in any, any any condemnatory way at all, but Lord, let your light shine on us so that anything that's here Anything that's in my thinking, anything that's in my heart, anything that's in my being that is not of you, that doesn't represent who you are, let it be actually burnt out with laser precision, with laser-like power, and burn it all out of me so that I can shine like you. Amen? I am the light of the world. A dramatic, amazing statement that releases power into our life. Amen? To let our lives shine.
God bless you. God bless you.